We'll be looking at a passage in Luke, which is a familiar story to probably most of us. This is the story of Zacchaeus, and then we will flip over to 2 Corinthians in one of the letters of Paul, and we'll talk a little bit about the grace that God gives us in life. Last week, uh, I was not here. It is good to be back with y'all. Uh, we went camping last weekend, took a little vacation over our winter break. Uh, when Mardi Gras, I work at a Christian school, it was winter break. Uh, but I took a vacation uh, and uh, went up there. And on the night going up to the state park outside of Jackson, uh, my GPS took me somewhere on a little highway outside McGee. Uh, rather than taking me up to I-20 or Highway 13, even out of Mendenhall, it was through McGee, and then that connected up to 13. I was somewhere out in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi. Uh, some of y'all probably been to those places before, where it's not even a dot on the map. Uh, and, and as I make a turn with my camper behind me, I see blue lights up ahead. And I'm thinking, surely, I can't even remember the name of towns like Polkville, Pikeville, some, somewhere up in there. And I'm like... Nobody even knows this place is on the map. And there's two cops there with a roadblock. And I'm like, really? I mean, they, they really probably only stopped four cars that night. Uh, and, and I go pulling up there, and I'm confident because I've got my license, I've got my insurance. And the guy, I roll down my window, he's like, I'm just checking license and insurance, sir. And I hand him my license, and I go into my armrest. Now, in my armrest, there's a plastic sleeve that I've had with me since I've had my last truck. And I always put my insurance card right in that plastic sleeve because it protects it from all the other stuff that goes into my armrest. I don't know if y'all do that with your armrest, but uh, I have a kid, I have a wife, and they throw things in my armrest. So I got a plastic sleeve because I'm that kind of guy, and I want to know where my insurance card is at all times. And when I go in there... First look, I don't see a plastic sleeve. And I'm like, PJ, have you moved something out of my armrest? She's like, uh, no. Uh, do you think it's in your glove box? And the cop's standing there the whole time listening to my wife and I talk about where she might have put my insurance card because I know it's in a plastic sleeve in that armrest. I went through the armrest three times. There's no plastic sleeve. The cop finally looks at me and says, sir, you can go ahead. I don't know if he got tired of hearing my wife and I have a conversation about where that thing was or what. He just decided to let me go. I appreciate that cop. If I knew who he was, I'd tell you he's the greatest cop in Mississippi right now. <laughs> Serving Pikeville, Polkville, wherever it is. Because uh, it wasn't a state trooper. It was, uh, it was one of these little small towns. But he was gracious and he was kind. And when I got back home, I still ain't found that plastic sleeve. I don't know what happened to him. I'm pretty sure PJ put it somewhere safe. Um, and I've yet to find it. But one of these days I'll come across it, but I do have a new insurance card. I appreciate grace. And I can't make fun of my wife anymore because when she was a lawyer, she used to get stopped all the time. She'd never get a ticket. And I used to tell her, I said, it's so unfair because you get stopped by cops, they let you off. I get stopped by cops, they give me tickets. I mean, usually they don't even come up there and have a conversation with me. They just come up there with the ticket in hand. And I said, they keep letting you off. They keep giving you grace. I said, it's probably because you're a lawyer. She said, no, it's because I'm a minister's wife. I, I quit using lawyer a long time ago. Um, she said, nobody likes them, but if I tell them I'm a preacher's wife, they'll let me off. Um, I said, well, it don't work for being a preacher. Uh, let me just tell you that one. I appreciate grace. I, I really do, especially when it's given to me. Uh, I ain't worried all that much about when it's given to others, but when it's given to me, I truly appreciate it. And oftentimes we find grace in a variety of ways within life, we find no more grace ever in life than we find through Christ himself. To, to, to know the grace of God, 
to, to have God understand who we are and to know who we are, to, to, to know our deepest thoughts and our deepest desires, the stuff that we keep away from everybody else, the, the thoughts and, 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 and the internal uh, desires that we have that we don't want anybody else to know about, maybe even those who are closest to us. And yet God knows all of that. And yet he still showers us with his grace. He still pours out his grace. He allows me to live in his grace. Understand what I'm saying by that. It's not just simply that I am saved by his grace, but I live in his grace. In other words, even when I've been saved through the blood of Christ, even though I've been saved through the grace of God, I continue to live in that grace on a daily basis. One of my favorite songs in college was uh, sung... um, and, and one of the lines in the song was that I'm a man in need of a savior every day. That's not something that is just one time in life. That is not just something that, that happens at one point in life where I need a savior. I need a savior every day of my life. I need God's grace every day of my life. I need God's grace to guide me. I need God's grace to keep me. I, I need God's grace to, to be poured out upon me. My favorite hymn in the hymn book is one that speaks of a nature that exists within us that is prone to wonder. Come thou fount of every blessing. We're prone to wonder. My heart is prone to wonder from God and it is a prayer to keep my heart. How does he keep my heart? He keeps it through the grace that he is willing to bestow. So so we see the desire or we see the need for grace and salvation. And, and, And one of the stories I want to look at this morning is the story of Zacchaeus. And as I said, it's so familiar to most of us. And many times we look at it, uh, and I think we roll right past it, but there's a lot there to be said. And it is also a story that wonderfully identifies the need for God's grace. And when that grace is bestowed upon us, the change that takes place immediately within our life. If you'll look with me in the book of Luke, chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 19, beginning verse 1, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Jesus reached the spot. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost familiar story to us we know him to be a wee little man and that's why he climbed up in a tree just so he could get to see the lord we see Zacchaeus' desire right we see that he has a desire to meet christ and jesus enters into jericho and he's passing through and this man Zacchaeus wants to just lay eyes upon him he doesn't want to have a conversation with him he wants to see him there had to be something in Zacchaeus' life that made him want to encounter christ there was a drawing There was something that just gnawed at him. There was a 
a desire within his soul that says, I want to meet this one. We don't know what stories he had heard. I'm sure he had heard stories about who Jesus was. I'm sure he had heard stories about the miracles. I'm sure he had uh, heard stories about redemption. I'm sure he heard stories about this tremendous rabbi who was teaching the way he was teaching. But whatever it was, it was Zacchaeus. And and it just had a sense in him that I've got to meet this guy. I've got to encounter him and I'll do whatever I need to do to encounter him and to meet him. And Zacchaeus goes out just to see him. And we know he climbs up the tree to to see Jesus. And and, and as Jesus is passing by uh, and Zacchaeus is up in the tree, it says that, that Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now we know Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And there's a lot that has been made of tax collectors. Guys, tax collectors were the worst people in the Jewish community. There was nobody else hated more than tax collectors. Yeah, lepers were put in a colony way out there, but that was because they had a disease. I'm talking about on moral grounds, there was nobody more hated than tax collectors. And the reason for it was they were traitors. They were traitors. They worked for the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people couldn't stand the Roman Empire, and therefore they were traitors at their very heart. Not only were they traitors, but they were cheaters. So the way the tax collectors made their money is that they got to charge you whatever they could charge you above what Rome required and whatever they got above what Rome required, they got to keep. So not only were they traitors, they were also cheaters. And who were they cheating? Their very own people. The people who were considered them to be family. So they were working for the enemy and they were cheating you out of everything that you had. They were not well-liked people. They were detestable. People hated them. Now we know that Jesus dealt with them and dealt with them in a fair way. One of his disciples was a tax collector. But now he comes up to Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows that he's a cheat. And everybody knows that he's a traitor. And Jesus stops by and says, Zacchaeus, come on down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Almost a divine unction, something that, that, that God has given him to do. I must stay with you. Zacchaeus, come on down because I'm going to your house today. It's hard to preach this without getting into the song. Um, it, come on down because we're going to go to your house. And everybody around began to mutter, right? Everybody around began to say, does he know who he is? Is he aware of how evil he is? Does he know that he's a chief tax collector? Does he know that he's a traitor? Does he know that he's a cheat? Does he know what he did to me? There's no way this rabbi, there's no way this Messiah, there's no way the Son of God would go to the house of a person like this. But I want you to understand this about the passage. Notice that Jesus does not put one stipulation on Zacchaeus. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, if you promise that you will reform your ways, I will come to your house. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, if you give back half of what you own, I'll come to your house. To the poor. Zacchaeus, if you will repay fourfold what you have stolen from people and cheated them out of it, I'll come to your house. Not one stipulation goes on Zacchaeus. He just simply says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house because I must. 
That is the grace of God. It's the grace of God that you see demonstrated through the life of Christ. We just sang a song about being fully known by God, but yet being fully loved by God. Because this is a passage that demonstrates being fully known by God and also being fully loved by God. Zacchaeus, it's not that Jesus is ignorant of who Zacchaeus is. It's not that Jesus doesn't know all of the sins of Zacchaeus. It's that in spite of being a chief tax collector, a traitor of the Jewish people, and a cheater of all those who were friends with him, Jesus still has grace on him and still loves him. Because this is a tremendous story that gives us hope, right? This is a tremendous story of one making their life right with God and right with Christ. And it allows us to see how God pours out his grace upon us to bring us into this relationship of salvation. But I want to see, I want to show you what happens next. Because while Jesus put no stipulations on them, as soon as Jesus says, come down, I want to go to your house today, or I must go to your house today, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people around were muttering, uh, he's gone to the guest, he's gone to be a guest at a sinner's house. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus didn't put a single stipulation on Zacchaeus for him to come to his house. But when Zacchaeus experienced the grace and the love of Christ and the grace and the love of God, what happened? Zacchaeus himself said, i got to make these things right. I've got to repent. I've got to be redeemed. And redemption means repentance. And that means a change of direction. And Zacchaeus stands up and says, I tell you what, I'm going to give back half of what I own. I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. Not a stipulation that is required upon him. To make restitution for the wrong that he has done, he goes and he pays back four times the amount that he cheated anybody out, which is the strictest laws of restitution found in the book of Exodus. So in other words, he's not trying to cheat anymore. He's not trying to say, I tell you what, I'll pay you back two times what I stole from you. He goes back to the strictest laws of restitution within Jewish society and says, I will give you four times what I've paid you. And then he goes above that and says, anything else I have, half of that will go to the poor. Why? Because when you encounter the grace and the love of Christ, when you understand the grace that God has for you, it transitions things in you. The, the, the most important thing that you have in life is no longer the money that you've amassed. The, the most important thing in life is not the property that you possess. The most important thing in life is, is not the things of this world. There's something else. There's something bigger. There's something greater. There's something that is more grand than we can even imagine. And, and what Zach is understands that God has poured out this grace without putting any stipulations upon him. Yet all of that is fulfilled because he's encountered now divine love, an unconditional love, and redemption takes place. 
And part of redemption and part of restoration and part of becoming new is through this act of repentance. And sometimes we miss what repentance really is. We just kind of miss the concept. In 1 John 1, 9, it tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an act of repentance. And an act of repentance also, in some ways, requires restitution. So much of our relationship in in Christianity is between us and God. But I want you to understand that our sin has two impacts. It impacts God mostly. Our relationship with God, look at the story of David and Bathsheba when he prays in the book of Psalms. And, and, and he says, against you only, God, have I sinned and against no other. Well, I always said, I bet you rise over there going, uh, excuse me. You put me on the front lines and left me there. You killed me. I think I've got a little bit of skin in the game. But what David is saying is my sin against God is far more important than even the murder that I committed against you, right? In the book of Genesis, when you're dealing with the story of Joseph, and Joseph is being accused of of going after Potiphar's wife, uh, and Potiphar's wife is trying to entice him in to her uh, bedroom, Joseph says, I could never do this against my God. He doesn't say, I can't do this against Potiphar because Potiphar trusts me with the whole household. I can't do this against you because it's a sin. With He says, I can't do this against my God. There's a recognition within the Old Testament, New Testament alike that when we sin, our sin is between us and God. But there's also a recognition that the sin that we have in our life is between us and God and also between us and others. Our sin impacts others. And, and, and there's a sense that, 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 yes, my relationships with God, and the only one I have to confess to is God himself. Through Christ. Christ is my mediator. Y'all don't have to come and confess to me. Thank the Lord. Uh, I got to look at all y'all. Um, you don't have to come and offer confession to me. You go straight to God. I mean, that's the wonderful part about the, our faith is you have access to the throne of God. He's given that to you through the death of Christ. But as much as we go to God and ask for forgiveness, we still make restitution for the wrongs that we have done. It's one of the notions that in some ways we've lost because we think, I just pray for forgiveness and I'm covered and I never make restitution for the wrong that I've committed against another. Part of repentance is making that restitution because what repentance truly is is changing direction. So I'm going in this way. This is a perfect story of repentance. Zacchaeus is raking in the money. He's wealthy. He's moved all the way up, not just to be a tax collector, but the chief tax collector. And he is, he is living the life. And immediately when he experiences the grace of God, his entire life changes. His life changes no longer to be focused upon the monetary gain, no longer to be focused upon what he can acquire in this life, but rather who he can help, where he can make restitution, and what his new life's going to be. That's what the grace of God can do in one's life. It can change us. To be redeemed, we are changed. It doesn't mean that we don't ever struggle again. It doesn't mean that we don't, we don't ever sin again. 
it doesn't mean that we don't ever get off track. It doesn't even mean that our priorities never get out of order again. All of those things can happen after salvation, but redemption changes us. What salvation is, is an understanding that I want to serve God more than I want to do anything else in life. It don't matter how much money I have. It doesn't matter how much property I have. It doesn't matter how much comfort I have. I want to serve God more than anything else in life. And that's a change. There should be some type of recognizable change when one encounters that grace and comes to salvation. Zacchaeus, it was immediate. And it was profound. Because he understood the grace that God had given him. And Christ then goes on to say, Today salvation has come to this house because this man is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. In other words, he understands salvation now. He gets it. It's a prime example of what happens when one encounters the love of God and when one encounters the grace of God. If you would turn over with me to 2 Corinthians. Book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to pick up in, in, in the midst of one of Paul's longer arguments. To go back to the beginning of this argument, you, you need to really go back to the beginning of chapter 10. But, but in this argument, what Paul's laying out is why you should trust me. Why am I considered to be an apostle? Why do I have an authority uh, over the church? The, the question simply is from the church kind of, why should we trust what Paul says? Why should we listen to Paul? And Paul's laying out his credentials. He's giving you his resume, so to speak. And, and he's defining himself as apostle because Paul has a struggle here, right? Because Peter and James and John and all of those, they walked with Jesus. They were there when Jesus fed the 5,000. They were there when Jesus... Uh, raised the uh, girl up from de the dead. They were there when Lazarus walked out of the tomb. They saw all that. Paul did not. The encounter that Paul had with Jesus was on the Damascus Road. It, it's kind of a, a, a mystical experience as described in the book of Acts. That's different than what the other apostles saw. That's different than their encounter. And, and we see that Paul rises up to the prominence of the church. Matter of fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul even calls out Peter. Out in public, out in front of everybody. So Paul has this clout about him. He, he has this authority that surrounds him. And in 2 Corinthians from chapter 10 through chapter 12, you're getting this kind of resume. And, and, and Paul's defending himself as an apostle. And, and, and we're at this point where he begins to kind of talk about who he is. And he begins to, to address an issue of what gives him the right and the authority. And in the midst of that argument, he talks about some of the uh, necessity of the grace that he lives under. In chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard in inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, 
so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul is laying out this argument, and one of the things that's going to give him authority and clout is to kind of explain these revelations that he's had, this mystical experience that he has. It identifies that he's close with God. And Paul begins to talk about these revelations where he's seen paradise itself. And he's lifted up. It's a mystical experience that he's describing. But then he comes down and he says, but I won't boast about this. I, I would boast about that, but I'm not going to boast about myself. So, so in other words, when he starts out this passage and he says, uh, I must go on boasting, although there is uh, 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 nothing to be gained. In other words, he's like, you've put me in a position now because you've asked me to defend the authority that I have as a minister of Christ, as an apostle of Christ, now you've put me in a position where I've got to boast about myself. I've got to lay out my credentials. I've got to tell you who I am. And he says some of that is that I've had these revelations and God has taken me up to paradise itself to, to see inexpressible things. And while I would boast about that, I'm not going to boast about myself. And God has made it such that he would keep me humble. He said, God gave me something that would keep me from being conceited. He gave me a thorn that is in my flesh. Now, Paul even goes ahead and says, if I wanted to be conceited, if I wanted to brag about myself, if I wanted to talk about myself, I got every right to do it. Because Paul was an impressive guy. I heard countless times growing up, that one of the tremendous elements of the Christian faith is that Jesus was able to do everything with a bunch of dumb fishermen. There's probably some truth in that, that he selected Peter and James and John. They, they probably knew more than they got credit for them, uh, the Baptist pulpit for. Uh, but honestly, you don't get somebody more intelligent than Paul. He studied under the greatest thinker of his day. He understood Greek philosophy as well as Jewish theology. You don't get somebody who's more intelligent than Paul. And, and, and Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He followed the rules. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was raised in the tribes of Israel. He was the man. And he sacrificed all that to become Christian and, and to bring Christianity into a Gentile world. And, and what Paul is saying is there are things in my life that I could sit here and brag about. But I'm not going to do it. And to keep me from being conceited because God has done so much in my life. He's done so much in my life to keep me from being conceited. He's given me a thorn in the flesh that I've begged him to remove. Now, we don't know what that thorn is. There's a lot of good speculation about what that thorn is. I, I tend to think probably the, the individuals who think it's some type of medical condition have a pretty good basis. I mean, Paul seems in some of his letters to suggest that he struggles um, in some ways physically. He, he, he tours around with Luke, who's a physician. It may be some type of medical uh, issue, 
But there's been other speculations as well what it might be. But we know there's something that hinders him and something that he does not want in his life. And he's begged God to remove it. And God won't remove it. Guess what this indicates, if nothing else, is that we experience God's grace in salvation. But that doesn't take care of all our struggles. It doesn't take care of all our heartaches. It doesn't remove all our thorns. Whatever the struggle is in Paul's life, Paul sees it as significant. Paul sees it as something that God has given him that he has to overcome. And he also sees that God will not remove it from him. There's things that we believe, if we're just honest with ourselves and would reflect upon ourselves, as wonderful as God's grace has been to us and the salvation that he has offered us, we still have thorns that we deal with. We still have issues that we deal with every day. And and some of it is is just intrinsic to who we are. Because we don't get to pick our personalities. We, We don't get to pick those traits. Some of us probably would pick different ones. I would pick a face that was more welcoming. Because I've been told by many that I have a grumpy face. And when I say many, that includes family members. Includes my wife. Just glad she was attracted to grumpiness. Um, I've got a grumpy face. I was sitting in the office at William Carey one day and a student came by and he kind of looked in and he acted like he wanted to say something and he moved on. He didn't say anything. I just kind of gave him one of those waves, went back to reading. My brother told me the next day, he said, you know so-and-so? I said, yeah, I taught him last semester. And he said, well, he came by my office last night because I was in my brother's office and he said, uh, he wanted to say something to you, but he said, you just looked mad. So he just went on. I went, well, I wasn't mad. I was reading. PJ tells me when I read, my face looks mad. I don't know, maybe as a kid I didn't like reading and it's still torture to me somewhere internally. I I don't know, but if I had to choose it all over again, I would have more of a welcoming face. I say that, but sometimes it's advantageous to have people walk right on by your office. Uh, So it depends on the day, right? If it's the right people who walk by my office, I'm like, thank you, God. Uh, Give me a grumpier face. Uh, But at times... I mean, I can remember sitting in a hospital room visiting someone and this preacher walked in and it was fascinating to me because this was a preacher that she had like back then her youth uh, age and he was there at the hospital, heard that she was in there. She, he come in, I'm sitting in the corner, I'm carrying on the dialogue like I usually carry on a dialogue, not very well. Uh, I'm not a small talker. And, and this guy come in and I mean, he had command of the room. I mean, I can remember sitting in the corner going, this dude hadn't seen her in like 20 years, and it's like they're best friends. It's like they talked on the phone last night. I mean, it was just this presence about him. I mean, where he come in, and it was like no lost time, and he was connected to him, and it was a gift. And I was sitting there in the corner, because that's where I sit, in corners. Uh, I think that comes from my childhood as well. But, but I, I was sitting in the corner thinking, man, that, that's a tremendous gift. If I could choose a gift, I, I mean... I would have chosen, and once I got older in life, right? When I was younger, if I could choose a gift, it would have been like speed, because uh, I'm slow. 
uh, but, but, but as I get older, there's more significant gifts that, that I could choose, right? And, 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 and those are apparent to me. But I don't get to structure my personality. I don't get to structure who I am. I remember in my preaching class at seminary, the, 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 the um, professor uh, had me preach. And, 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 I mean, he honestly got up there and he was like, um, I got to say, I never expected you to preach like that. He said, I've had you in three classes. I've heard you say one word. I never expect you to, like, come out and preach. I was like, well, I'm quiet. He went, I get that because I've not heard you say one word. He said, but whatever it is that keeps you that way, keep it, whatever it is. There's a sense where if I had to choose who I would be, I would probably be very different. And I wouldn't struggle with the same things that I struggle with, but most likely I would probably struggle with other things because I don't know how I should be structured. In some ways, that's faith, right? Understanding that God has created us in a way that he is ready to use us in the way that he calls us to be used. And some of the things that we see as negative sometimes are positive. We don't see it. We don't see the struggles and, and, and the difficulties. I had somebody telling me a story the other day, and I don't even know if this is true. I've yet to look it up. I probably will look it up sometime in, in, in this uh, week. But they said when golf was created, it was created with a golf ball that was perfectly smooth. Um, no dimples, if you ever seen a golf ball. It's got dimples all over it. And, and it was a perfectly smooth golf ball. And, and then after they began to play golf with it, it was not a hard enough material, so it would begin to be dented. And then over time, what they discovered is once there were so many dents in the ball, it actually performed better in the air and on the ground and on the greens and things of that nature. And it gave them insight and went, huh, maybe we should build a ball that comes pre-dented. So we have dimples in a golf ball. I have no idea if that's true or not, but it makes this point. The guy who was talking said, I look at my life like that smooth golf ball. The struggles that I have and the adversities that come dent me. But eventually those dents are going to pay off. And God understands that I need every one of those dents to make me perform better and be a better person. And it's kind of the soul building argument, if you will. Those things come into our life and the adversities come into our life and we struggle against them and we overcome them so that we might become better people and stronger souls so that we might be better used by God. Some of us got a lot of dents. Some of us are going to get a lot more dense. But each of them, God understands how to use them for the betterment of his kingdom and to be a better person. We have to trust in him. And what Paul says is, I trust. And, and, and this, these are the words of Christ, right? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, no matter how many dents you get, my grace will cover you. And you're going to be the person that I've called to be used by me. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for salvation. His grace is sufficient for sanctification. His grace is sufficient. We must believe it. We must have faith in it. And we must live according to it. I have not only been saved by the grace of God, 
but I live daily by the grace of God. It is that grace which covers me. It is that grace which allows me to live life. May we truly trust that no matter how many dents we get, God can still use us. And his grace will still cover us. And that we may accomplish the things that he set before us. If Paul, who is above all else an amazing Christian figure, a model of who we should be as Christians, if he is a person who struggled with a thorn that he could not overcome himself, then I have all suspicion that we ourselves, even those who have been baptized into the faith and have been saved by his grace, still struggle with thorns ourselves. I would imagine we have prayed that God might remove those thorns. May we embrace the notion that they may remain, but his grace will always be sufficient. May we honor him, may we glorify him with our lives, and may we live a life that is covered in the grace of God. Let us pray. God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for being a God who is gracious. We thank you for being a God who is loving. We thank you for being a God, Lord, who knows us. Not just knows our past. Not just knows our current, but even knows the mistakes that we will make in the future. Lord, understands the wrong turns that we will take. The places that we will go are unintended. And Lord, yet you still love us. Not only do you love us, Lord, but you sent your son for us. Understanding that this world would still be filled with wars and hatred and everything that is detestable to you yourself, you still sent your son to die for us on a cross so that we might be saved through the blood of Christ and through the grace of God. It's amazing. Lord, every day of life we are reminded of the thorns that we have, whether it is a personality trait, whether it is a struggle where we are open to a particular sin, whatever the thorn is, may be physical, it may be mental, it may be psychological, it may be spiritual, whatever that thorn is. Lord, as much as we beg you, it's something that we still deal with. And I pray, Lord, that we will come to the understanding of Paul, that we will hear your voice as much as he did when you say, my grace is sufficient, for it is in your weakness that my strength is made known. Lord, I pray that as individuals we will truly bow before you as king, recognize your authority, and in all things, Lord, honor you as we live this life. Lord, in all things, understanding that we live by your grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning we'll have a time of invitation. Any decisions that need to be made in a public fashion, feel free to come forward at this time. If you'll please stand. Cash.